Well, greetings, brethren. I want to bring greetings from those I serve, uh, both in our region and the brethren I pastor in Indiana, Kentucky, and we have a little bit of Illinois as well. And uh, I know being here, I just want to comment how much uh, our brethren are so very thankful for the work that God's given us the opportunity to continue to do. You know, when you see these children here who are wonderful and precious gift, it's very difficult to understand how anyone could rationalize that we should not do the work of God. It truly is, because they're a wonderful and precious gift that God has given children. And you can read in the book of Psalms where God addresses that. That's not my subject, but I could not help but be moved by our children and by the song that they sang. Like most of you, I probably, if you have a computer, you have friends who send you uh, items of humor, items of interest. Recently, I had an email sent to me. It was sort of the chuckle for the day, but also says something in a topic I wish to address today. The email read, when we had President Reagan, we had Johnny Cash and Bob Hope. With President Obama... We have no hope and no cash. (laughs) I also found it humorous. It's not too often I explain a message as to what motivated me to speak on it. But I think it would be helpful to share with you the events over a period of literally months, maybe a year, that provoked me to prepare this message and to give it. I'll take just a few examples, but one was a letter I received about a, a, almost a year ago. It was from an individual who visited the Living Church of God, very nice gentleman, very capable, and he lived quite a long ways from the Louisville congregation. Uh, he had a background with having read the literature from Mr. Armstrong, But he visited once. I did not see him again. Uh, Tried to follow up, and he informed me he was attending and continue with the Church of God. But because of distance, I believe, I do not know, he may still be attending there. He sent me a, a letter months later, and it was a very nice letter. But in it was an announcement that he was planning to run for the House of Representatives in Kentucky. And in his letter, he explained that he hoped, because of what he saw happening in this nation, that he could make a difference. This year, past year at the feast, I arrived before services, had no planned comments on this particular topic, and before church had one of our brethren say something to me that provoked me to make a couple comments in the sermon I gave at the feast. They were not well thought out. And frankly, they were not fair and balanced. They were just a few brief comments about getting too involved and spending too much time watching Fox News, following Glenn Beck, Rush Limbaugh, and the other, also the liberal end, all of the turmoil that is happening in our nation. Well, my comments weren't really fair and balanced, and I was very grateful that Mr. Wally Smith, later in the afternoon, who had the same topic on his mind, made additional comments. But I was traveling on to Prescott, 
And so I had time to think through my comments rather than just make a few brief comments. And one reason I did so is because after services, I had more brethren come up and talk about the two-minute comment I made than the sermon I gave. And one lady came up and she said, Mr. Greer, I'm so thankful. My husband spends all day listening to Fox News. And it made me realize that I needed to say something, and I wanted to say something when I traveled to Prescott. And so I did. And again, I had many brethren come up and talk to me about the subject, discuss what is happening in our nation, and express their feelings. Not long after the feast, I was in conversation with someone I've known for many years. They are not a member of the Living Church of God. They have been a part of the greater Church of God, including worldwide, going back into the 70s. And in the conversation, they made the state to me, statement to me. It was very direct. It says, I didn't vote for Obama. Well, neither did I. But it was also very clear to me, I had someone telling me that they did vote, that they had registered, they had obviously expressed their opinion in the political process that is a part of our nation. As a longtime member of God's church, brethren, I have never voted, nor would I. And yet I saw in this individual, and I've seen in others and other conversations I've had, and it's not so much a problem in that aspect in the living church of God, but I see an attitude that's changing. And I think it's very important that we consider it. The reason that I have never voted is because when I was baptized, I became the bond servant of Jesus Christ. And in that situation, brethren, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse 20 that we are ambassadors. Now, we are ambassadors because our citizenship is not, once we receive God's spirit, of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven which is clearly stated, you can write it down, I'll not turn to it, but it's in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. You can also read in Ephesians chapter 2 that we become members of the household of God. So God's called us out. And being out, we still have a tremendous responsibility. And that's what Paul speaks of here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20. It says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador lives in the country that he serves for his country. And we live, whether it's in America, Australia, New Zealand, uh, or other countries to serve and represent God's kingdom in the country in which we reside. We represent God's work and his people. And because of that, we are not a part of the process of government, whether it's political or otherwise, 
within the nation where we reside. That is the role of an ambassador. That's the role of every ambassador that the United States of America sends to represent this nation or that of other countries sent to represent their country here in our nation. And so it says then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Because God's intent is to reconcile man to himself. And God's called us to serve in that way. Now, the Bible's very plain that Jesus Christ made it clear that if his kingdom were of this world, he would be an activist. He would not sit on the sideline. He would be extremely involved. And it's important for us to understand that. Notice here in the book of John, John chapter 18. In John 18, and in verse 36. Christ is on trial. He's being questioned regarding his position. In that context, verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. The Greek word here is cosmos. I think a good translation of that word is this civilization or this age. Because as we know from God's word, the very kingdom of God is indeed going to be on this planet. But it is not of this world, not of this civilization, not of this period of time in man's history. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. Now, I understand and I appreciate when I hear things, you know, whether it's on Fox News or on uh, the local news or uh, read an article and I, I see events taking place or statements made or conduct that is destructive to a land that I love, I am stirred by it and I have emotions about it. But brethren, it's very important we direct those emotions properly. Christ went on. He says, my servants would fight. And when Jesus Christ returns, he will return with his saints and we will fight. Now, it's not going to be a big battle. You know, I, 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 if you read in the book of Psalms, God laughs in derision at when men rise up in rebellion and in spite of all of our technology, and I, I think in a way we're going to come to the place in terms of technology at the time of the return of Christ that we actually believe that we could take on, you know, may, which may well be represented as an alien invasion. And with all of our power and perhaps new technology that may come, that we're ready to go to war. Well... It's not going to be much of a battle. God's going to quickly put down the rebellion, and he's going to express his very deep emotions. And he's going to pour out his wrath and his anger. And I believe, brethren, as the very people of God and the saints of God, the emotions that we often feel and the frustrations we feel, God also is going to allow us 
as we join him. And I, I think we need to understand that. That we need to have that kind of fighting spirit. Mr. Meredith speaks of it as fire in your belly. Well, uh, I can get emotional. <laughs> and I remember times in my life before I had God's spirit that when I get a little fire in my belly, I didn't say much. I won't tell you what I did. I'll leave that to you. Now, Christ said, why? So that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And so we are not to be a part of the political process. Do you know, brethren, are we to bury our heads in the sand? Are we to look out in this world and sort of just draw back and not know what's happening and not understand what's taking place? I think every one of us, whether you're here from Australia, New Zealand, from Kenya, from various parts of the world, that you share the feeling I share, I love my homeland. I love America. My father fought for this nation. He spent 25 years in the military. You know, just a few years ago, our government released the names of those who served during World War II in the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. If you look up the list and look up the name Clarence L. Greer, that's my father. He served in the OSS. For years, he woke up with nightmares because of whatever he experienced in the military. My grandfather fought in World War I. You know, when I was a youth and I went to school or I went to Little League, we said the Pledge of Allegiance, our hand went to our heart. If it didn't and my dad was nearby, um, you, you don't tangle with my dad. <laughs> he was very patriotic. You know, that's not wrong. The Apostle Paul said, and I'll not turn to it, he loved his countrymen. And he said if it were even possible, he would have given his life, that he would have been accursed if he could have in some way served them and brought them to repentance and made a difference. And so we are to love and we are to care. And if we do, I can understand why it's easy, we can easily get sort of overly involved and we can start listening and, and get you know, emotional and get stirred up. And that's good if it's in the right way and it's in the right balance. In fact, God tells us in the book of Ezekiel that he commends those and he will protect those who sigh and who cry for the abominations that are done in Jerusalem. If you're not familiar with that, you can read it in Ezekiel chapter 9. And so it's very understandable. In fact, it should be something we have to deal with. That when we see what's happening in our nation, we see incredible debt and money being spent. When we see government that seems to go astray from the true needs of our people and our nation. When we see individuals with private agendas. Yes, all of us, whether it's here in America or if that happens in your homeland. I know I was talking to Mr. King about what's happening in Europe. 
And it wasn't, it's not the same open political process. He said the media is controlled more by the press, but he commented about the secularism and how it's different. All of us know wherever you live, this world is going to go through change. And it's going to affect the lives of people around the world, no matter where you live. And so, yes, we need to be stirred and we need to understand, we need to see, we need to be watching. But brethren, we should do so as God's servants. We should do so with an understanding and a perspective that the knowledge and truth that God has given to us reveals. Now, concerning Israel, I know that all of us who are a part of this nation, a part of Great Britain, a part of Israel scattered that bear the name of Ephraim and Manasseh, that we know that God tells us our nation is going to go down, our people are going to go into captivity. I'd like to point out to you as you read the scripture, you know, if you go in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the minor prophets, and if you were to talk to someone of mainstream Christianity, they will tell you those books are a historic record. They reveal how God punished Israel, how he punished Judah. And that's how they view it. When it speaks of God's kingdom, that, well, that's symbolism. But you know, brethren, as you read in those passages, and I'm not going to dwell here because that's not my focus, but it's a part of why we are stirred. Because for all my life as a young person starting in God's church about 13 or 14 years of age, and up to this present day, I have known and believed, not immediately, but by the time I was about 17 or 18 years of age, I began to believe what I read in God's Word. And brethren, it wasn't something that I sort of just adhered to in a way of doctrine, because I grew up Catholic. When you grow up Catholic, you kind of, your life is a little bit separate from your faith. But I believed it in a sense that it was real. It was be a part of my life and what I would experience. And I went through a period of time when I thought I may never have children. I went through a period of time in my life when I thought perhaps I would not marry and we would go to a place of safety. But I never doubted what God said. I understood after time went on that we were not good judges of the times in which we lived. But brethren, that does not take away from the word of God. His word is sure. And the things God tells us, they will happen. And when you read through Isaiah, Jeremiah, or the prophets, you'll find there are statements they have not been fulfilled. And they cannot be explained away. But brethren, as you also read, please understand, you read about a history in great detail at times that is going to be repeated. It's history again, repeated again, act two. Notice in the book of Isaiah, and I'm only going to read one passage, but it's very, very clear because in the Language it makes it very clear that it's a separate event that has never happened before. In Isaiah chapter 11, 
And in verse 10, it says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And we know that this is a prophecy of Christ. And it's interesting how often the mainstream theologians recognize prophecies of Christ, but they wish to pull away from the reality that they are events and speaking of the future. And yet, in these same prophecies, brethren, our prophecies, they recognize at the very first coming of Jesus Christ, were fulfilled in every detail. You know, that would seem to give you a clue that if you're reading a book and here it has prophecies, and they, we can look back and say they were fulfilled in every detail. That when it speaks of other prophetic events, that possibly they may also be fulfilled in the future. In this particular case, it tells us in verse 11, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. Now, where are they scattered? And has Israel ever been scattered as described in this particular passage? From Assyria and Egypt from Pathos, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations. He will assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. God's going to bring his people back from the captivity. But brethren, it's a captivity where they are literally scattered around the world. Now, if you read on in this passage, you realize because of what it says in verse 16, and the emphasis here, it particularly mentions two areas of the world that seem to be the prominent area of their scattering. It says, there will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel. In the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. And so God clearly tells us that the primary area is going to be Assyria. But yet, they're still scattered around the world. Now, how that scattering takes place and what events lead to the captivity that God clearly tells us of in his word. You know, we will see as we go forward. But it's sure as sure as the rising sun. And when we see that, we understand that. I've understood that, as I said, from the time I was about 17 or 18. I, knew, I heard it before. I said in a Bible study, I remember, I had notes in a, a, a little no, notebook. I remember one of, at that time, God's ministers who had a blackboard. I lived in Eugene, Oregon. And we had all these charts and lines, and I faithfully copied them down. And I wondered, but I didn't know. I didn't really believe at that point. But as time went on and I matured just a bit, I began to have a different perspective. 
And then as I served in God's ministry and began to study and preach God's word, you know, my belief has never changed in that regard. Not ever. Because God's word in those, in those things is clear, it's sure. And, you know, knowing that, knowing that those things are going to happen and to see the beginning of them, to see the stirring of them, I can understand the emotion. I can understand someone who's been in God's church for many years sitting down and getting involved and getting upset and watching a program or, a, you know, maybe a, a special. I can understand that. I can understand somebody yelling at their TV. As I've had people tell me, I, you know, I've kind of learned it doesn't help to yell at the TV. I even know one individual told me he kicked his TV. <laughs> The real question is, what should we do and what should we be learning? And that's what I want to emphasize today. Because, see, brethren, we're going to live in a time in history that is at the end of this age. In some ways, it's a very exciting time. It's a time that many of God's servants had a desire to live in. As they prayed, thy kingdom come. And yet it's also going to be a very difficult and very challenging time. And don't kid yourself, God tells us in the book of Matthew, Jesus Christ warned us, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. It's going to challenge you, and it's going to challenge your faith. It's going to challenge your very focus. But you know, when you go into something of that nature, if you're prepared and you think out, what are my priorities, what are my goals? What is first and foremost? Then you can meet the challenge. If you enter into a a difficult and trying time and you've not prepared yourself, you can get bushwhacked. You can get off target. You can kind of miss the mark. And so I hope in part, and it's only in part, brethren, but I hope in part this message will help you to recognize certain areas and certain things that you should keep focused upon, and that you should understand and add to your understanding as we go through the difficult times that lie ahead. I'm going to make a statement that I want you to remember. It's very simple. It's the power of sin to destroy. Because that's what we are going to witness. What lies ahead is not about the personalities of various individuals who fill certain roles. Now, there may be two exceptions to that that the Bible speaks of, and that's the beast and the false prophet. But aside from that, brethren, when you start looking particularly in our nation or the nation you live in, as we move forward, you need to realize it's the power of sin that is going to bring destruction. That sin has the power to destroy. It has the power to bring incredible misery, despair. Ultimately, it brings death. And for this nation, brethren, sin is going to bring the death of a nation. And we need to understand that. And we need to focus on that as we witness events take place. God wants us to watch world events. 
But if we get focused just locally, we're not watching world events. All of us know that what's important is, yes, indeed, the coming down of Israel in the latter days because of their sins. We know that. But we also know that key players and key events will take place in Europe, in the Middle East. We know that key events will be taking place as world powers shift and position themselves. And we see some of those things taking place. Events during Mr. Armstrong's lifetime that were discussed and talked about and prophesied, they're today reality. There is a common market. And just five years from now, the greatest cash force in our world is not going to be America or the Northern Hemisphere. It's actually not going to be Europe. It's going to be the Eastern oil-producing nations because they're selling all of this energy and they're literally assimilating huge reservoirs of cash. Now, that statement is based on present statistics. It's what's been happening over the last three, four, five years. And if you just extend that into the future, if the numbers remain the same, that block, Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Russia, they're not a part of the Western community. They are going to be the cash-rich, money on the table, They're going to be a powerhouse. Now, how that affects the world, how they, if they will act together, if they do, economists who read what's happening and study it, they know they're going to be a powerful force. We look at China. You realize that if statistically nothing changes, if we just keep on the same path 10 years from now, the gross national product of China will pass America. That's with no changes. If we just take the statistics, put arrows on them, go to the future, 10 years from now, China will pass America in its production, its gross national product. And yes, the world is changing. If you look about economies right now, there's a tremendous concern for Japan. That's the next area of the world they're concerned about collapsing. And it would impact this nation greatly. So, yes, the world is shifting. Changes are taking place. But as they do, we need to understand as God's people, as we watch world events, that we should understand. God doesn't want us to live through this period of history of all of these events taking place, brethren, and not learn the really important lessons. And one of those lessons, one very powerful lesson, is to see and understand the destructive force of sin. In the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 4, we read here of the events that took place when Cain and Abel brought an offering to God. And I'm going to go directly to the point because the offering of Cain was rejected. And he was angry with what transpired. 
He wanted to be accepted, but he did not want to change. You know, God loves his children. And Jesus Christ, the creator, said to Cain, verse 6, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? His anger, his emotions, brethren, were so deep that it just came out of his countenance. I'm sure his eyes were dark with wrath. And his face was probably slightly flushed. And his heart was probably beating just a little bit faster than normal. The Lord said to him, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. That's not necessarily a bad translation, but brethren, if you look at other translations of this passage, it brings out the fact that sin is waiting to attack you. And God is telling him, you have to subdue it. You have to be in charge. You have to take control. Now, God reads and sees the heart. And he knew in the heart of Cain was an act that was irreversible. That he had murder on his heart. And you know, brethren, if you make certain mistakes in life, sometimes you can correct certain things. If you were to take something from someone or you were to shoplift and you wanted to do right, you can go back and return it. You can return the money. But if you take a life, you do not have the power to restore that life. You know, as parents, if you have children, I today have grown children. God's blessed us with seven grandchildren. My oldest grandson is 14 years old. It's a little hard to realize I have a grandson who's a teenager. And I know in just a few years, he's, he's a very fine young man. But I had children, and I went through the teenage years. And it's a concern every parent has. Because you have a son or daughter, and their body's maturing. The, you know, physically, they're developing and the mind is sharp, it's academically alert, but you also as a parent know, because see, you've been there, done that, experienced it, that they don't yet have the maturity and enough experience to face successfully maybe every temptation and every trial. And so you try, you work, you, you, you think. I spend a lot of time at times thinking about how can I help my children through certain situations. Because you know that at that point in life, they can make a mistake that they will live with the rest of their life. That it's irreversible. Now, they can go back and try to do everything they can, but, you know, there are things physically in our life that when we do them, they change the path of our future. Not spiritually, necessarily. God forgives sin. But there are things we can't change. And that's where Cain was. He was on the verge of a sin that would change his life, that would leave a mark on him. And we know that because of his conduct, God did. God separated him. 
And that's also true for each of us. It's true for our children. It's a time that we're all concerned about. It's also true in each of our lives. When that happens, what transpires is then sin has control. Sin is now in charge. Sin is ruling your future and what lies ahead for you. You know, David understood that. David wrote in Psalm chapter 19 and verse 13, Psalm 19 and verse 13. And it's interesting, he particularly spoke of a certain kind of sin. He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. You know, he's talking about a situation where maybe all at once, unexpected, not really thought out or planned, you do something, it's presumptuous. Why? Why? Why does he say this? Let them not have dominion over me. Because that happens. You know, sometimes people without thought have said things they wish they could change. Because it affected a relationship. Maybe in anger or frustration they said something to their boss. And they knew from that moment on, they couldn't take it back, but it changed their situation. The promotion was gone. (laughs) The thought of raise, maybe years of work and loyalty, all at once, it's all in jeopardy because of a presumptuous sin. See, sin can have dominion. Sin can take charge. It can be out of control. And you can't grab hold. You can't always go back and try to correct it. Now I bring this out, brethren, because it's what's happening in our nation. It's what's going to happen as we look in the world as a whole. Events take place. People do things. And suddenly it's sort of out of control. And we wonder, how can we stop it? What can we do to make it different? And it's also true just in our personal life. David repeats the same kind of statement in Psalm 119 because he understood this. Psalm 119 and verse 133 says, Direct my steps by your word and let no iniquity have dominion over me. He understood this principle. And it's a very, very important principle. It's important for us to understand because as we look and we see what's happening in the world about us, brethren, it's hard sometimes to understand. You think, you know, here are very powerful and very intelligent people, and you think, don't they have a little bit of common sense? But when you look at the reality, you realize sometimes because of compromise... Because of greed, because of the lust for power, because of all the things that perhaps have brought them to that point, the answer is they don't have control. 
They're out of control. They place themselves in a position where if they were, in fact, to try to change the tide, they don't want to face the consequences. And so there's a force dominating their life. And when that takes place, and it's because of compromise, because of greed, because of wrong conduct, sin... Their sins have dominion over them. We read in Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, verse In this case, is speaking of individuals who, if not a part of the truth of God, certainly had exposure to it. They knew of it. And God says in this situation, while they promised themselves liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. You know, Mr. Armstrong addressed this actually in a booklet. It was captivity led captive. He addressed it, and it was based on the passage, which I'll not turn to, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. That this world is in a bondage of sin. And that God, when He calls us, He takes us out of that bondage. And that's what is stated here. Because they promise themselves liberty. That's what they want. They're thinking they're free. But the reality is, in that thought, because there's true freedom not in breaking God's law, not in doing just what you please or what you want. True freedom, brethren, is an obedience to God's law. That's where you find freedom. That's where you find the things that you seek and desire that fulfill life. And we know that. We understand that. I think it doesn't hurt us to be reminded about it. But when we look in this world, we need to understand what's going on. It's the breaking of the laws of God that have bound the future of our nation, has put it on a path for its destiny. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. And we're going to see that on a scale as we move into the future, brethren, that not only affects individual lives, we see that occasionally, you might see it, you know, with a neighbor or a friend, but we're going to see that as it affects our community, our state, our nation, and brethren, eventually the entire earth, all of mankind. And God wants us to learn the lesson. God wants us to have our eyes wide open to realize that what we're witnessing and what we're seeing and understand why it is taking place. In the book of John, John chapter 8, verse 34, I think I put down 1 John, but that's not what I want. 
There is no 1 John 8, 34, by the way. So I'm fairly confident I put down the right passage. (laughs) These were the words of Christ. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. You know, it's from Genesis through the words of the book of Psalms, and it's many, many other places in your Bible. That sin has a power to destroy. Sin has a power to bring misery. You know, one of the things that I think all of us are frightened by is that God tells us there lies ahead of us a time of human suffering that man has never seen, has never happened, nor will it ever take place again. You know, what is frightening is when we look and see what man has already done. You know, it's frightening when you look at the pictures of what transpired in World War II. It's frightening when you read of what transpired in different parts of the world or different times in the history of mankind. You know, going into captivity doesn't mean quite the same until you actually see the, the pictures and the record that remains of how Israel took, or excuse me, Assyria took Israel into captivity. And you realize that they put fish hooks in their mouth and tied them and bound them together in that manner and marched them out. And that if they stumbled or, or fell, even a child, it would rip them open. You know, suddenly when you look at the historic record, then it's a different picture. And when you realize God says it's going to happen, and it's going to happen in a way that it's going to encompass the world in a manner that has never happened, and it's going to be of such a nature that there's nothing like it, nor will there ever again be anything like it. That is frightening. And it's easy when we look at those things, to kind of, in those circumstances, brethren, and under that kind of emotional pressure, to kind of get off guard. You know, when I speak of people who I talked with and I had come to me and chat with me about, you know, well, my husband's been watching Fox News, you know, all day long, that wasn't somebody new in the Church of God. That was somebody who had been in God's church for decades. I asked. I wanted to know. How long have you been a part of the Church of God? Oh, we were in the Worldwide Church of God, and I understand. And as I spoke to others, it's something we need to be aware of because our heart cares. Because we are concerned. And brethren, when you're concerned, it does open you up emotionally. And so you need to think through. You need direction. You need to keep your eyes on the goal. You need to understand what God is doing. And so one of the very, very important lessons is to understand, as Jesus Christ said, Christ made it very, very plain. I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And sin, brethren, has the power to destroy. Don't forget that phrase. 
Remember that as you go forward and as you see events take place, that sin has the power to destroy. Now, in this regard, I'd like to also point out something else that's important for us to understand. In the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 3, In verse 9, it speaks of, at this time, it was of the attitude of people, but it's the attitude we see today. You know, when you read some of these words, it's what's happening. It's what's going on in our society. It says, the look on their countenance witnessed against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. Now, brethren, I didn't know that in Sodom they carried signs. <laughs> I'm kidding you a little bit. But I've, in Louisville, I, you know, I, did, I don't go down to watch, but I've seen it on the news. They're carrying signs. They're locked arm in arm. You know, men holding men's hands, women holding men, women's hands. And they are talking about what? Gay pride. That's what, and they have no shame. This is what God's speaking of. You know, we have the same thing happen in other circles of life. If you, I don't spend a very much time watching TV. And by the way, I don't get Fox News. I don't. Now, there's a reason for that. I, I just want to express it and so you understand. There was a time I got Fox News. Because in my local area, an inside cable in Louisville, the only way I could get at that time the telecast was to pay for the classic cable package because that's where they put WGN and at that time early in it was the global church of God that's where the telecast was and we had not developed some of the tools that God's blessed us with today and the internet and so on and so my wife and I we did not have it previously we said no we need to get it so we got it we had the telecast it was awfully early in the morning thank goodness for VHS retaping systems and <laughs> And so I had Fox News. And, you know, I had the full package there. But a few years back, it was probably 10, 15 years ago, they moved WGN into our basic cable package. At that time, I think it was about $13. And for all that I watch TV, I, when I found that, I told my wife, I said, honey, make a call. <laughs> and so they, you know, we immediately dropped back. And it is still there. Now, as God has blessed this work, I can get it off the Internet. I can go to YouTube. I can, you know, in fact, in the Louisville area, there are several stations where it's available. And so that's been a wonderful blessing. But I don't get it. Now, when I travel, I'll turn it on. And if I'm in my car, occasionally I will listen. And I do find it interesting and so on. So I have absolutely nothing against Fox News or other programs of that nature. But when I have brethren telling me of in their family and I have others coming to me and telling me the things, I realize, you know, we need to be concerned about this. And especially if it's been our long and old time members. And so as we read here 
you know, I, I got a little off track there. I, I thought I should explain to you why I don't watch Fox News. That's honesty. Fair was fair and balanced. Is that is that the right phrase? <laughs> fair and balanced reporting. Um, we read on here in verse nine of chapter three of Isaiah. It says the look on their countenance witnesses or witnesses against them. They declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. It says, woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Now, I, I chose this particular passage because it goes on to say something that we should be mindful of. It says, say to the righteous that it shall be well with them. And so, brethren, I say to you, that as you obey God through trying and difficult times that lie ahead, God says, it will be well with you. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him. For the reward of his hand shall be given him. And so we read in God's word something I think you can understand by this sermon, and that is that Men and people around the world are going to begin to reap the fruit of their conduct. That in this nation, in America, many of the problems and trials that lie ahead of us are because what we have and will do. And when we see those things, sometimes it's very understandable. And it's important we look and understand there's a cause and effect. But brethren, that's not the only factor. It's also noticed then, and something we need to recognize, and we are in this work certainly aware of, in Jeremiah chapter 6, there's another action that's also going to take place as we move forward within this nation. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15, it says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. You know, it's amazing to me. I, I, I remember a time when, uh, as a youth, and I think every youth does this, you know, you, you did something you weren't supposed to do. And so, you know, you're... I remember one time my sister had baked a cake, if I remember correctly. It was in the oven. We, my brother and I were not supposed to get into it. Now, she had hid, she hid the cake. It wasn't in the normal place. She had taken, is it a broiler pan, and put it down below, and she put the pan on it. But we could smell it. <laughs> and we knew we weren't supposed to be in it. We understood that. Well, let me sort of explain. When you're about nine, ten years of age, and this, this continual odor is wafting through the kitchen and into the, you know, we were overcome. <laughs> and we found the cake. And we had some. And, and, of course, then you want to deny. And I was being asked, and, and, and I, I, I wasn't just totally naive to the fact that obviously somebody took it. And in this case, obviously, it was two people. But if you have a brother that's only about a year and a half younger than you, 
you get a you get very used to doing this. <laughs> but I, I I kinda learned after a while I had a very difficult time lying to my parents. They always seemed to know the truth. Didn't get you anywhere. And I could do the same with my friends. I, I had friends, and if they started to, to lie, I'd, I, I could pick up on it real quick. You could sort of see they got nervous and, you know, fidgety. And I've dealt with young people today. They can look you square in the eye. They can have a smile on their face. And they can lie and lie and lie. There's a change that's happened. And if you deal with the public, you know what I said is a reality. That's the way it is. It's very difficult to know if someone's being truthful and honest. Just people can lie to you. You know, it's, it's like everybody's a used car. I shouldn't use that phrase, used car salesman. There might be some in here who are very honest. <laughs> and, and there are honest used car salesmen. I'm absolutely sure there are. And there are honest mechanics and other professions. It's just that they're becoming increasingly kind of difficult to find. But they're there. And I certainly know that in God's church, they exist. But that's the point here. It's, you know, it's, it's like they're not ashamed. You know, they, they, the countenance doesn't show where they are. They don't know how to blush. It doesn't make any difference what they've done. There's no shame in it. It says, therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them. Now, brethren, that statement is found not just here. You can read in Jeremiah 8 of the time of their punishment or so on. And it's important for us to understand that. Now, we know that in the living church of God. You know, it's an embarrassment, frankly, and a shame to those who do, but there are those who have ridiculed the leadership of the church of God because we tell this world and we tell this nation God's going to punish this nation. And there's, there are those who want to deny that, who ridicule it, but, brethren, that is exactly what God says. And as we move forward, we're going to see two things happening. One is the result of the sins of the people in a sense that it's a natural result of what they have done. We are also going to see the hand of God to punish. And we need to understand that as well. God made promises to Abraham. And in those promises, brethren, this nation will be corrected so they can fulfill the role and fulfill the promises God gave to his servant. And they can take the leadership and set the example that God says they should and will. And so he's going to discipline. He's going to punish. And so we, as we move forward, we need to understand that. We need to realize some of the things we see, and we can look. You have God's Word. It gives you wisdom. You can understand, and, and if you examine things, and know that that is a result of what we have done ourselves. But there are also events, I'm sure very key events, that will take place, brethren, whether it be in weather, whether it be in the lack of certain blessings, which are described in the Scripture, where God's hand is set against 
and to punish this nation. And it's because of our sins. And that's important for us to understand. A few years ago in the Council of Elders, we had a, a discussion. I, I, there may be those here who remember better than I do exactly how it led into it. But it was after 9-1-1. I think it was a, a, a several years after, actually. And it was during the life and service of a very beloved minister in God's church, Mr. John O'Gwen. And as we sat at the table and we were discussing what lies ahead for America. I well remember Mr. Gwynn, uh, he sat at the end of the table, I was near him, and he was sitting there. And sometimes when you're close to another person, you realize they, they have something they want to say. And that's a part of a group discussion. Um, I think sometimes people realize very quickly, I have something I want to say. I should shut up sometimes, but <laughs> but that's... Uh, uh, I guess that's the nature of my being. But um, I realized Mr. Gwynn had something he wanted to say. And when he did, we were all quiet. Because brethren, as he spoke, we all knew, every one of us in that room knew that what he said was spot on. That it was dead on the money. And I'd like to read to you what he read to us and share his comments. It's in Leviticus chapter 26. In Leviticus chapter 26, starting here, in verse 14, it says, But if you do not obey me, and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, and if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, But break my covenant. I also will do this to you. Mr. Gwynn did not read on. We were actually talking about terror, about 911, the changes that had transpired. But, you know, he brought out something that I think all of us, when we think about it, we know has happened in our nation. There was a time in America when... We would place God's commandments, the Ten Commandments, in the halls of our courts. When you went to school, when I went to school, they were there in the building. There was actually a time in America when you went to school, one of your primary textbooks was a Bible. They would read from the Bible. There was a time in America when we had key events take place within our nation whether to protect our liberty or to remember certain people who were heroes. We honored them by quoting God's word and etching it in stone, whether at the base of a statue in which we honored them to remember them. Now, we were not a righteous nation. Please understand that. You go back and you look at the history of our people. We had a civil war, brother fighting against brother, There was an incredible bloodbath. 
There were people who were filled with anger and hatred over the events that took place. We have a nation that went through a period of time of internal strife between the unions and the industrial world. And people were beaten to death with axe handles. And companies hired literally mobs to rule and to make sure there was order. We had a time in our nation, brethren, when you lived in a remote area in a western nation, you carried a gun. And if you had a dispute with your neighbor because there were no courts and there was no justice, if you had a belligerent neighbor, you protected yourself. And there were individuals who became famous and that we know even their name to this day within our nation because they were thieves and robbers. And they took many lives and cared for none, none but themselves. There was a time in this nation when there was mobsters and gangs and carried machine guns in the cities of our major or streets of our major cities. So, no, this has not been a righteous nation. That's a reality. And there are other things. You can look at divorce statistics. I don't know where they are exactly right now today, but about 15 years ago, I was working on a message. And I went back looking, and I thought at that particular time, you know, divorce has to be the worst period of time ever in the history of our nation. It could have been 20 years ago. It was 15, 20 years ago. I was shocked to find out that it wasn't. Back in the 1800s, it was a period of time when divorce was incredibly high throughout this nation. Now, we've not been a righteous nation, but we have respected the word of God. Even if it's just been with lip service at times. But we understood it had integrity. But that has changed. We live in a time when God's word is despised. We are going out and removing it from our courts. We're rebuilding the bases of certain statues because they contain God's word. We have people who, if they bring up the fact that they simply believe in the scripture, have in danger of losing employment in the public sector. Now, I could go on and on about that, but that is a reality. That's a change that every one of us have seen. And as Mr. O'Gwen stated these words and went through this passage, every one of us who serve in God's ministry and the council, we knew those are words of truth. That he put his finger right on something very critical. And I would point out to you, this is what God says here. He repeats it again, verse 43. It says, the land also shall be left empty by them. And it goes through all these events that are going to happen and take place. It says, and will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhors my statue. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. Nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. Now God is faithful. 
But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt and the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. You know, even at the very end, as God goes, he goes right back after all these physical events on his hand to punish and all of the things that Israel will reap because of their sins. He goes right back to the conduct and attitude that we have toward his laws. And I think that's very important for us to understand. We have made a turning point within our nation. We know it. The world around us sees it. But rather than they don't understand what that turning point was. They don't understand why is it different today than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. You do. I do. And this is the reason. And brethren, after this statement, then those things we read in the rest of this chapter, they follow. God has called us not to be servants and slaves of sin, but to be free men. We are his bondservants. When you were baptized and you were placed in the waters of baptism, you came up free in God's sight, forgiven of your sins. But you came up as a servant of God. And we look forward to the time, brother, when when Jesus Christ returns, we will join him in rulership. But we need to understand that we live in a time that's preparing us, a time of preparation for God's kingdom, and a time when we should be learning very important and vital lessons. And I, I believe, frankly and truthfully, it starts first in America. But when you look at the scripture, whether you're in Europe, wherever you are in the world, please understand that the power of sin to destroy doesn't end here. What lies ahead, even as this nation goes down, brethren, is an evil empire. And of it, God speaks of its abominations and every kind of wickedness that will come from it. And its wickedness and its sins and its abominations, brethren, if the Jesus Christ did not intervene, would bring the end of all human life. And so please understand and realize, don't get caught up in the what a, a how of what's taking place. Focus on the why. See clearly in your mind the why. Make sure that your sight is clear and plain. And yes, there are times your emotions will get stirred. And I I suspect as we go forward, brethren, that it will be even more difficult because some of the things will happen will touch our personal lives and our children and our families. And when it gets close and personal, it's a lot more difficult. Make sure your focus is on the why. And remember... Remember that phrase, because it's something you will witness and you will see as we move forward to the time of the return of Jesus Christ. Remember, the power of sin to destroy.